It was a Sunday morning in the spring of 2012. A small one-story home in North Bend was on fire. Firefighters wanted to get inside to figure out the best way to fight the flames and to ensure there were no victims. Unfortunately, this wouldn't be one of those textbook situations. First, the front door was blocked. There was something inside barring them from even cracking it open. They found a side door off the carport and went in that way. As they started searching the home, they noticed gas cans, which appeared to be full, scattered throughout different rooms of the house. And they found the victims. 41-year-old Lynette, still lying in her bed. And her 18-year-old daughter, Kayleen, also seemed to have died in her sleep. But was it the smoke that consumed them or something even more sinister? And who lit the match? If he had been as good an arsonist as he was a murderer and builder, then we may not have found him. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. What an what an intro. You know, it reminds me when firefighters go into situations or first responders, like you never really know what you're going into. Which is a lot of times why they show up together. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, just it's the way you've set it up. It's like a simple house. You think it's a simple fire, but obviously it's it's so much more. It is so much more. So the fire crews decided they would remove the bodies and then back out and they would call the King County Sheriff's detectives in. I got a call from my sergeant at nine o'clock or nine twenty in the morning saying there's been a double homicide and can you go to North Bend and gave me the address. So when I arrive, fire is there and they're on the outside of the house. They have cut holes into the roof and they're spraying foam basically everywhere. Robin Cleary was the lead detective. She says it was immediately clear something sinister had happened here. They got a search warrant, and because of what looked like booby traps in the home, all those gas canisters, they called in a bomb disposal robot. But with all the firefighting foam, the robot wasn't going anywhere. Firefighters had to go back in. This time, they removed the gas canisters and what looked like a pipe bomb, which was found inside a safe in the bedroom. They also found two more victims, a cat and the family dog, little Dino. By this time, Detective Cleary says they realized there were two things that were glaringly absent from this picture. Lynette's car was gone, and so was her husband, Peter Keller. We don't know whether he's a victim. We don't know whether he's a witness. We don't know whether he's been kidnapped. We don't even know. Maybe he's just at work or out for a hike or whatever, going to get gross. I mean, we don't know. Lynette's family says Peter was a quiet guy, but he loved his family and was really good to Lynette and Kayleen. While other detectives tried to track Peter down, see if maybe he was at work, maybe he was running an errand or visiting family, Cleary was with the medical examiner doing the first inspection of the bodies. I'm the one that's helping to remove clothing and holding it up, letting them photograph, and then we're packaging it. I don't know. I, I think I detach. I mean, I know that's two beautiful people that are laying there dead. It's sad, but I can't let that get to me. I can't think about who they were, who they are, 
who their family members are, who's going to grieve for them. I can't think of any of that. All I can do is process it methodically, carefully, so that I don't miss any evidence. Do you ever think about that maybe that is the best way to honor them and respect them is to find out what happened to them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't imagine signing up for that job, though, to be the one who is the first to remove the clothing, photograph the bodies, try to determine the cause of death. Meantime, you've got these two beautiful young women who had something horrible happen to them, and you have to block that out somehow. Well, I think that you know, being a reporter and being a detective, they're very similar. I've noticed just in the sources and the, you know, working with law enforcement, you know, in in the business. Um, but that's one of the things that I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't do just that keeping it together. I just couldn't do it. Like even in the news business, it's it's difficult when you hear all the bad stuff to kind of compartmentalize it. And, right. th- and that's what we do. But they can. I couldn't compartmentalize. You know, it's right here. How how they do it, I don't know. I mean, could you do it? No way. No. I, I still remember when I was a little kid, I, I thought I wanted to be a vet because I absolutely loved animals. And I still do to this day. But there's no way I could be a vet because then I would have to see the animals in pain and suffering and I would have to stay level-headed and not be emotional and try to, you know, help in that situation. And there's just, that is not a skill that I have. Yeah. I mean, the (laughs) only way that I have that skill is with my kids. Like if stuff happens, the broken leg or the this or that, you know, it's like that I go into that mode. But what this is right. is is just a completely different animal. Completely. And I think there's a difference too between I'm okay with the gross stuff, right? Like the the <laughs> like what? Well, like, like you know, the, gore? the poop that comes out that's all weird or disgusting or that doesn't come out and you have to fish for. Let's not go there. Um, <laughs> yes. Like the grossness of having yeah. children is yeah. like that's not a big deal. Yeah, but it's like. The emotional, when they get upset or when they hurt themselves to the point that they, you know, are just crying frantically, my brain just goes haywire and I can't think straight. It's like I don't even have control at that point. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely something that, um, fortunately, I haven't been tested that many times, but you really just don't know what you're going to do, and you just hope that you can you can make the right decision at the right time, and it sounds like, you know, she has figured out a way to compartmentalize this. Right. So Detective Cleary said it was starting to look like Lynette and Kayleen were dead before the fire started, but how they were killed, that remained a mystery. We're looking for evidence so that we can find out Were they stabbed? Are we looking for a knife in the house? Were they shot? Are we looking for a gun? Are we looking for shell casings? Were they choked? I mean, we're looking for how they died, the method, so that we can find what was used to do it. So were you able to determine that on the scene? Yes. Kayleen was shot behind the left ear, and Lynette was shot in front of the right ear and in the top of the head. And there was still a shell casing in her. we found in her hair. So this has gotten escalated really quickly. At first, now you have all these gas cans. You've got this potential bomb. And now they have been murdered. This is an assassination right. and this is a cleaning up. Well, and interestingly, she said those gas canisters that were littered around the house, it looked like the arsonist had intended for them to explode and basically destroy everything oh, so there yeah. was no evidence left. But... He made a fatal error, and that is he left the cap on the gas canisters. And without the needed oxygen, the gasoline never ignited. 
And so the fire remained in, you know, one or two rooms instead of engulfing the entire home. And they actually found a ton of evidence later on that would help them track down the killer. So like she said earlier, if he had been a better arsonist, they might not have found so him. So that, that one mistake of leaving the, the lid off the gas can is basically what stopped it from blowing up. That's pretty much it. So we know now that the two young women had been murdered in their sleep. Now detectives knew they needed to find the killer. And they were still asking themselves, was it the missing husband? Did somebody break into the home? Where was Peter? And where was Lynette's car? Someone finally finds the car later that day at the North Bend Library. Keys are still in the ignition, and it's just left. So we're like, eh, that's weird. They were getting closer, but there were still a lot of unanswered questions. After hours of phone calls, talking with friends, family, and his employer, they still couldn't find Peter. They couldn't even ping his cell phone. Yeah. It seemed to have been turned off. I mean, this is kind of like, I know they, they have to keep an open mind, but the spouse is the first person that they're looking at. Well, he's you know? known to be an avid hiker who would go to remote areas. So it's not that unusual for him to be off the grid for periods of time. So they kind of, they wanted to still keep an open mind and they still were not ready to call him a suspect just okay. yet. Mm-hmm. Everybody's describing Peter as just hardworking, avid hiker, and a family man. Loved his family. Loved his family. While Cleary and the other detectives continue to pound the pavement, back at the sheriff's office, computer experts have been looking at some disks and hard drives that were found in the home. Items that should have been destroyed in that fire, but weren't. And that's when all the pieces started falling into place. We start seeing these photos and it's like, you know, man, what is that? And as the computer forensics person starts going through these, she's coming to us saying, okay, what is that? We could see just photos up in the woods. In 2004, you see he's built, like, put in irrigation, and he's got flowing water coming out of the side of a hill. Later in 2004, you start to see where it's actually being, like, dug September 2007, you see the framing of of the bunker. A bunker that was carved into the side of a mountain. Something that he had been building for eight years, according to all this video and photographic evidence. Peter was still missing, but they were now beginning to wonder if he could be at that bunker. To answer that question, of course, they had to find it. Which bunkers are known to be bunkers like hidden. Like it's not going to be something easy to find. And in the video, they also noticed that um, the door of the bunker, the hatch that he used for the door was actually indented and he had planted ferns on top of it. So it wasn't like it was going to be obvious in any way, shape or form. Detective Mellis keys in on a series of like, I think they're like six to eight photos. They're all in sequence. And it's almost like He stood right where this digging was and took pictures in a 360 of where he was. But all you see is forest. There were two pictures that Mike keyed in on. He's like, something about this, you know, these photos. And you could see light coming through the trees and Mm -hmm. branches. And so he's like, you know, he plays with it on Photoshop. And he's kind of a computer Photoshop nerd. I'm sure he'll love me saying that. Um, (laughs) But he used to like filter color in and out 
to see what he could find and to see if he could see any outlines of anything. And, you know, he kind of played with it for a while. And then we were off, you know, trying to find other things. So he put it aside for, I think, two days. He decides to go back to it because, again, we start to see more and more photos of this building bunker thing being built. With those mad Photoshop skills, he was able to identify power lines and a tension cable in the background, and then way off in the distance, what looked like some buildings. Matching the pictures up with some satellite photos, thanks to Google Maps, they were able to narrow down the search area to one square mile near Rattlesnake Ridge. So we use our resources. We call our Tech 30 guys, our SWAT guys. We have a meeting with them. I use one of the guys there to contact Department of Natural Resources, Fish and Wildlife, and every, you know, detective in our area. And we bring them in and we have a meeting and I'm showing them photos. We're talking about the topography. We're talking about year-round lake or stream, water source. And then we show the photos and what Detective Mellis has come up with, possible trajectory up into this general area. <laughs> of Rattlesnake Ridge. Our our helicopter goes up with our SWAT sergeant to see if they could figure out which side of Rattlesnake Ridge makes the most sense. Which side has more old growth forest versus the other side? They rule out the south side. It's got to be the north side. So where is this in the investigation? Like how many days have, have passed since? So this is several days later, probably about three to four days later. And before they're able to really start honing in on a specific area of the forest. And how far away is the the home, the murder scene from Rattlesnake Ridge? It's several miles. Okay, um, so it's close. It, it's somewhat close. Yeah, I mean, you would have to drive to get there. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not, I mean, it's it's probably the closest popular hiking area to the North Bend home where they live. So lived. it would make sense that if he were to be building something for eight years, that yeah. it would be, you know, that's a feat in itself because wasn't he working full time? Oh, yeah. He was working as an IT repair guy. He would fix computers um, and, you know, got rave reviews from his boss. Apparently they had no issues with him. So it would make sense that this could be because, I mean, it is literally like finding a needle in a haystack. Oh, yes. I mean, when you look at the photos, the fact that they were able to pinpoint where this location could be is pretty incredible. And it was also in really, really rugged terrain. It was an area that was home to one of the most popular hiking trails in the Seattle area. Um, and it's beautiful, partly because of the fact that it is, there is a ridge at the top that you can, you know, climb up to and have these amazing panoramic views. Um, it's not unusual to see hundreds of people out there on a nice day. And Detective Cleary says if they found the bunker, they were afraid of what Peter might do. Yeah, good call. As we're digging deeper and Peter has clearly become our suspect, we're finding that he's made multiple firearm purchases. He's got rifles. He's got scopes. He's got silencers. He's got body armor piercing rounds. He's got a police scanner. He's got money. So they scour the mountain. They usher everybody off and block the entrances on each side. Then the SWAT team is driven up on logging roads and dropped off just above the area where they believe 
the bunker is hidden. But again, they don't really have a specific location. They have a one square mile area with an idea of maybe a few directions that they could look in. When they first got out and started going down the mountain, there was heavy snow. This is in April. Then they go down further. There's heavy rain. There's fallen trees. There's moss covering everything. Every, everything is slippery. They are probably the best physical specimen out there as far as well-trained. They work out. Some of them had gone through mountaineering training. I don't think anything prepared them for what this ended up being. They're falling. They're slipping. They have way too much gear. They're falling in mud. They've got moss in like their gear. And in all of the cracks and orifices, there was just moss and mud everywhere on these guys by the time they got done that day. It's crazy that this guy was a computer guy. And I'm assuming a lot of things, but I'm, you know, if he's behind a computer a lot of the time during the day, you know, I mean, and these guys are seriously men and women, I'm assuming they're in super good shape and are having a hard time getting through this train. It's amazing that this guy. Yeah. And he had to carry all of his supplies up there. He would carry cement bags that were, you know, um, 100 pounds up this mountain somehow. And he wasn't exactly the best physical specimen, as the detective would describe later. He had a dad bod. He had a little paunch. He yeah, wasn't super yeah. muscular or super fit in any way. Mm-hmm. You would never guess that this guy was capable of doing what he did over there. Well, it sounds like not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally. Like, you would never think that he could get there based on his quote-unquote dad bod. And then also, you know, just what is going on with this guy all these years of building this. And it makes you wonder, was he planning on murdering his family from the get-go for the eight years that he's been digging and burrowing and building and bringing, you know, supplies up there? And it's like, isn't this why true crime is so, like, Right. Trying to figure out why. That's the big question. Well, they were trying to figure this out. And of course, if they could ask Peter, that would be a great step in the right direction. And amazingly, on that that first, you know, hike up there, though, or hike down, I suppose, from the logging trail, their efforts actually paid off. They found the bunker their first time out, even though the hatch door was covered in those living ferns and was almost completely invisible. Another sergeant was down in North Bend. He's looking up through binoculars and he sees what he thinks. He's like, is that fog? Is that a puff of smoke? I don't know what that is. At the same time, the SWAT guys are like smelling something. And then they see this smoke. And then they find the hatch and they knock on it. And they start hailing, calling out Peter's name, demanding he come out. No response. They keep trying for hours. But by now, it's getting close to nightfall. And if they have to bust into the bunker, they want to be prepared for what they expect to be a gunfight. Other officers surround the area so that if he's in there, Peter can't escape in the night. Meantime, the SWAT team tries to recover and prepares to go back the following day. They were so cold and dehydrated that I remember one of the sergeant's fists were like closed, we ended up having to like pry his hand open to try to get his gear off of him. We had King County medics there. You know, they were offered IVs and a lot of them were like, ah, no, I got it. And I had to sit them down and say, no, you just take, take a damn IV. This is ridiculous. 
Some of them did. Some of them left and had to go to the hospital later that night. It's safe to say none of them got a good night's sleep. They also had to clear their gear of all that mud and moss that had found its way into all the cracks and crevices and wash their uniforms as well. So the following morning, they could go back out, this time a little wiser for the wear. Quick question here. Weren't they worried that he'd, like, skedaddle out through some, like, side burrow door or something like they were and that's why they had um stationed officers all around this area so that no one could get in or out um it wasn't a matter of looking for him specifically but it was also a matter of making sure no hikers came in there um early early in the morning like sometimes they like to do to watch the sunrise and just make sure that the scene stayed the way it was no one came in and no one came out and so when the SWAT team went back the next morning they decided you know what Forget that logging road and that long trek down the snow and the rain. They got helicoptered in. Nice. They also made some uh, some additional kind of smart moves as far as bringing in electrolytes with them so they didn't get dehydrated and, you know, bringing in different gear that was a little bit more appropriate. And they also brought in some human reinforcements as well. The bomb disposal unit and hostage negotiations were up there with them. They put detonation cord around the top of the bunker. They thought it was enough that it would blow it right off. It blew it enough to where it came up and then back down. So they still had to pry it open. This thing was well built. Peter Keller was found dead inside. What they would find out to be a three-story bunker with enough supplies to last him months. What I found interesting was as much preparation as he took in building this, getting all these supplies up there, all the rifles, all the ammunition, the scanner, the money, I mean, everything. The scanner was in a plastic bag. He didn't have it on. Most of the rifles were disassembled because he brought them disassembled in backpacks. They were still in parts. He was in his socks and sweats. So he didn't think that we would be looking for him at that point. He didn't expect it that soon. So again, his hubris of thinking that he was going to get away with this, he wasn't prepared for them to find him. Not he that quickly, underestimated in any case. law enforcement and like the gas canister, you know, he had prepped for all this stuff, but he was a little slow on the draw when it came to Absolutely, yes. Okay. And Detective Cleary says that finding Peter Keller dead in his bunker was both a blessing and a curse. Lynette and Kayleen's family wouldn't have to relive their murders by going through this lengthy trial process. But they would also never get the opportunity to ask Peter why. Why had he built this bunker? Why had he killed his wife and daughter? And why had he killed himself? As it turned out, they would wind up getting those answers. In addition to recording the progress on his bunker over the years, he took several videos where he explained his plans and his motivations. Lynette had been injured in an accident, had back injury, couldn't work, was in pain a lot, and was on lots of medication for pain. We discovered, because we found a ton of it up in the bunker, he had been siphoning off of her pain meds. So he talked about how he was going to kill his family. He said that Lynette couldn't survive without him. He was extremely narcissistic in that I'm going to kill her because she can't live without me. And I'm going to kill Kayleen because she's just like me and my wife and that she is socially awkward. And I don't think she's going to survive well without me. I'm getting to the point where 
just trying to live and pay bills and live as a civilian and go to work I just it just freaks me out it's actually more comfortable for me to think about living out here um, robbing banks pharmacies just taking what I want for as long as I can at least it'll be exciting it won't be boring and I don't have to worry about Lynette or Kayleen and everything will be taken care of It'll just be me I think it's interesting that he says I won't have to worry about Lynette and Kayleen what exactly is his worry because as a parent my greatest worry is that my children will be killed you know you can see the look on my face as I'm like listening <laughs> to that guy I'm yeah. like thinking to myself the same thing like it sounds like this selfish midlife crisis totally. bunker bullshit like I can't even that's not an excuse that's not but what's your like there's still no valid reason because he he doesn't want to be bored like what takes what what where is that line where you know you're going in line and you know you're and maybe people you know it's a midlife crisis or whatever you get a car this guy just decided somewhere along and I don't know if this is true but just listening to his cocky you know, attitude, like he just wanted, he was bored. He wanted to yeah. go rob banks and he wanted to like. He basically said when he started this bunker project, it was something that he did sort of as a fantasy, imagining, oh, I could live here and oh, I could stock it. Nobody would find me. Wouldn't this yeah. be cool? I can yeah. get away from the world. And it was sort of a fantasy. But over the years, it seemingly got more real to him as things got built, as he had water plumbed in, as he had his heater, oh you know, working and had the food stocked. And, and he did all this himself. He so did he's all doing this it himself. all. And he even took down trees in the forest and would plane them and clean them out in the forest and then use them in the construction of this building. So he brought in cement and he brought in supplies for inside the bunker but all the wooden things that he used to build it he actually took out of the forest and was like his own personal lumberjack and it's interesting that he uses the term civilian like i can't be a civilian like was he ever in the military i I don't know i I don't have any record of that i mean it's just kind of like unbelievable i mean you know when they talk about they'll be able to read our minds in the future and i'm always like (laughs) I don't want that, (laughs) you know, that privacy with all the security cameras everywhere now. We're losing our privacy so much. But it's like this guy is the perfect example of like where you would want to read someone's mind because you would. I mean, it sounds like he was playing everybody for a decade almost. Right. You know, and the interesting thing, too, is that. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, I wish I knew why, right? If if the the murderer is dead when you find them, oh, we never get to find out why they did it. In this case, we find out why, and it still isn't satisfying. Because he's just a selfish jerk. But but would it ever be satisfying? Like, even if, even if it was a somewhat reasonable explanation, it makes me rethink all the times that I've said, oh, I wish I knew why. Yeah. Because truly there is no adequate explanation for doing something like this. I think that, you know, you have a background in anthropology, and I've always been interested in why human beings do what they do. I mean, it's just always been something I've been interested in for uh, forever. You know, that reptilian cortex. Right, the, right. You know, the the what's the, the, the neocortex, which is like the warm and fuzzies. And, you know, it's that it comes down to that that bird brain. But in this particular case, from just that little snippet that I heard, 
he doesn't sound crazy to me. He just sounds like he wants to live this weird fantasy world yeah. that he's just you know, disenfranchised with everyday life. And and I actually interviewed this guy who actually makes bunkers. Like he's sold this whole idea for the elite and for, you know, people who can spend a lot of money. They're almost like communes. You know, they're going to be communities and you know, you have to pay like $200,000 and and you save your spot. It's like this fantasy as the world becomes, you know, it's always been complicated, but it's really getting crazy. You know, it always feels like the kind of like stage left, like, okay, but it still doesn't justify it. I'm just, I I just think that, you know, there's the doomsday fantasy that most people can't relate to. Well, and I think even if you're a doomsday prepper, you know, it's not that uncommon these days, you would take your family with you. (laughs) That's what really surprised. It's like okay, you have a three-story Good bunker. Point. You yeah. couldn't take your wife and kid. You couldn't take the dog. I mean, the dog is not gonna tell on you. He's not a rat. It's you can take the dog. I know. Why did he? Did it ever say why he killed the dog and the and the cat? I I think he just wanted a clean break. He just wanted to start over and not have any encumbrances whatsoever. Um, if you're interested in he- in hearing more, we do have a lot more of Peter Keller up on our website. That's sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. Honestly, I don't want to hear any more from him personally. I didn't want to include any more from him on this podcast because he doesn't deserve it. Yeah. Well, I've heard the, the, the 15 seconds that I did hear. That's I think it, I think it pretty much says it all, right? Yeah, exactly. So next episode, I have an interesting, I think you're going to be surprised by this because I'm sure you've heard of the Hillside Stranglers. Oh, yes. They did their killings in California. But did you know that 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 case touched in Washington State? No. And that Washington State, I got to give credit to the Whatcom County because they are pretty much the reason that these guys got caught. So that'll be uh, next episode next week. All right. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio and this is the scene of the crime.